Hello, hello everyone. Happy Friday. Today we are here with another Oracle News podcast and let me tell you something. This one is an exciting one. So first, my name is Leda and I'm here alongside Georgelina. Hi, George. Hello. Yes, it is a happy Friday and a week full of podcasts. We got two podcasts this week. This will be our second. Very special guests that have been doing just very active in the USF community. And for this week's episode, we have President Stephen Corral. We were able to talk with him uh, for this week's podcast, just a little bit about his career, as well as um, how did he end up at USF and the how he's been dealing with the challenges posed by COVID, as well as the events happening around the country. So it's truly has been a really good conversation and we're excited to share a little bit with everyone just a little bit beyond his role and who Dr. Stephen Corral is. Yeah, I feel like a lot of the times with administrators, especially with um, school going on and everything, it's easy to just see them as, oh, they're administrators. And so it was nice to be able to have a conversation about what it's been like for just throughout the year and about his life in general. Absolutely. So stay tuned in because this one's for the book. So without further ado, let's get into it. Well, welcome everyone to our podcast of this week. We have here today the USF president, Dr. Stephen Corral. Welcome, Dr. Corral. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yes, we're really excited to just talk a little bit about um, this, your tenure at USF so far and how you've been dealing with all the challenges and just for everyone to get to know a little bit about you. So one of the first things that I wanted to talk about was when you first came to USF uh, in 2019 after former President Judy Ginshaw retired, what drew you to come to this university? What was the driving factor behind your decision to, I want to be the next president at USF? USF is a courageous university. I, I find it it's so compelling to uh, look at the, the trajectory that the university has been on since it was founded in 1956. And, and it's, 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 of course, been a, in, a, in a growth mode, but it's so fascinating to me to see the, the courage and the aspirations that the USF community has had to, to, to not, not only just grow in size, but really to grow in quality and excellence and research and the quality of the undergraduate education, the quality of the graduate education, our ability to, to, to give back and contribute to the region, the Tampa Bay region, state of Florida and nationally. And so this, um, this, this amazing uh, journey that the university is on I just found so compelling and and so fascinating, and it really is one of the uh, the the few universities that has this trajectory. And of course, having spent over thirty years in higher education, I have some familiarity with the higher ed landscape. And and USF is really a, a very unique and 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 fascinating and exciting university. So that's what got me excited about the. Uh, the opportunity when it was first presented to me. Definitely. And, you know, it, it seems like it hasn't been easy for, the, for your first year. Um, you 
took on a lot of tasks, um, consolidation, and then with the pandemic coming in on top of that, budget cuts, et cetera. Uh, what has been the, kind of the most challenging part of that? Well, the, the whenever one comes into a new leadership role like this, there are always surprises. So you, you, you go in knowing there are some things that I just, I, it's impossible for me to know about the university going in. Uh, so there are always new things to learn and new developments. Um, so those are the um, unsurprising surprises, the things that you you know you just kind of expect that. But um, and, and consolidation was one that I knew about when I took the job. So in fact, I found that intriguing, and I think the university community found uh, my background interesting and my organizational background interesting in my ability to hopefully to, to help guide the community through to success and consolidation. So we knew that going in, that was not surprising. Uh, the pandemic was a surprising surprise in the sense that none of us anticipated that. Um, but, you know, it, it's really been amazing what the University of South Florida has done on, on managing, on, on containing COVID-19. If, if one looks at the, at the figures, the case numbers, going back to, say, August of last year, we've had a little over 1,000 cases. So there are other universities in the state, large publics, that have had four, five, six times as many cases as we have had. And that's really uh, a tribute to our success is attributable to the community under the leadership of, for example, Dean Donna Peterson of the College of Public Health, uh, Dr. Charlie Lockwood, the Senior Vice President for USF Health, and this amazing community of scholars and researchers uh, uh, like Dr. Summer Decker, who developed the 3D printing for the nasal swab so we could be more effective and quicker in, in testing for COVID-19. So it, it's really been uh, an amazing confluence of, of and, and uh, coalescing the university around how we respond to this. And I'm just so proud of what USF has done in the way that we've we've tried to minimize the risk to our faculty, staff, and students of COVID-19. Absolutely, and you know, as with the Oracle, we've been following up a lot of what has been happening. We've been going to meetings and all of that, and what I see a lot is a lot of pressure from and from um, faculty, from students, from just with everything that's happening, the pandemic, budget cuts, and even consolidation. And I wanted to ask you, how do you handle um, possible stress and the pressure from dealing with all these issues while overseeing all three campuses? Well, it's, uh, it's, it's a busy job. It, it's, it's a busy job. But one of the things that, that I love about the job and I gain energy from is the diversity of the things that I can do. So I, I go from one meeting to the next and I'm talking about faculty development and hiring or retaining faculty members. I go to another meeting that's about diversity and inclusion. I go to another meeting about uh, building a facility, the new, say, student wellness center. Um, and then I go to another meeting about athletics or I go to a, a football game or a basketball game or a volleyball game. 
And so that that the the the, the diversity of tasks and uh, people that I get to work with actually gives me energy. That I find it incredibly stimulating to to have those kind of interactions. So it's it's it, it's very engaging. Um, and and I also love spending time with our supporters, like our donors and alumni. And uh, I just spent time earlier this afternoon with Frank Morsani, who's been a, a very important supporter for the university. And and those people are so generous and so kind and and willing to help that it's really a joy to to be with them. So so that helps. There, 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 there's also the issue of just managing the volume. So it's it's a very busy job. It's it's a lot of hours per week and on the weekends. And I, I work at night. I work on the weekends. But I really love my job, and I feel like it's a mission that we're on together. And so um, uh, that that helps me manage the stress. And then a lot of it is about the team. So any big institution like this has got to have a great leadership team and. Um, I'm very fortunate to have inherited a number of great uh, colleagues and also have hired a number of them uh, as well myself. So we're, we're a team and, and we do it together. And I have trust that they do their jobs and they can deliver in what we need them to do. And so that that helps me manage the stress and I, I try to get some exercise uh, that's very important as well. So uh, it's it's a constant uh, juggling uh, task, but uh, managing it pretty well so far. Yeah, and um, I know you mentioned that the volume of the tasks that you have to take on is it, it's a lot. Um, and I even I hearing that that's kind of stressed me out for five seconds there. Um, but you know you have this history like this isn't your first administrative position in higher education. You have a vast history of um, you know being a provost, vice dean, etc. Um, how long did it take you to adapt to the weight of these responsibilities when you came to USF as the president? Did they change a lot the the load or was it kind of similar um how how have you adapted so so the overall volume has not changed uh, a, a great deal but the tasks have changed and one of the things that's different about being a president than say being a, a provost is that i'm i'm much more externally focused so what i'm what I'm doing and what I'm eager to do even more of is uh, be out and raising raising philanthropic support, being up in Tallahassee and interfacing with governmental officials and advocating on behalf of the university there and working with um, local partners like the Tampa Bay Partnership, the Moffitt Cancer Center, the Economic Development um, Agencies, uh, the Innovation Alliance, and and so that's that's what that's what I'm really excited about doing. And and yet at the same time, you're going back to your earlier questions. There have been a number of things that I needed to really focus on and be a good steward of, uh, because of some of the challenges that we've been confronting, such as budget. Okay, so budget is affecting our state support, and I, I can't ignore that. I I have a team that works on budget and finance and. And 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 I, I rely on them a lot, but I I to be a good steward, I need to be engaged. I can't just kind of give it to them and walk away. I need to be engaged um, in that uh, in those discussions that I have been, and I've been trying to always further strengthen the the pillars of support and excellence in the university, and 
and and kind of continue to strengthen the, the the building that we have, the architecture of the building that we have. And some of that requires me to be involved in in internal activities as well. And and so I like that. It's it's pretty familiar to me. But a lot of my a lot of the decisions I make uh, are about how to manage how much time to invest internally versus how much time to invest externally. And and in recently, we're, we've kind of shifted a bit more in the last, say, three to six months to more external work for me. And so, uh, so I welcome that. Absolutely. One of the things that I remember and even kind of related to this past question was when you first arrived, we kind of had access to your resume and it was pages and pages and pages. <laughs> it's amazing to see how much experience you've had. And, you know, to become a leader leading the university, it's all based on those experiences. It's not just one day that one can become like that, right? So I wanted to ask you what aspects of your upbringing uh, shape the person and leader you've become? So I'll, I'll, I'll begin with a, a very important experience I had earlier in my career, uh, and then maybe say a little bit more about my, uh, my upbringing. So um, uh, when I was about uh, seven years into my career at another institution, I, I read a Fortune magazine article on the role of Stanford in the development of Silicon Valley. And, and I found that fascinating uh, for many reasons, some because it, it talked about the entrepreneurs that developed Silicon Valley, um, but I, that really wasn't the, the thing I found most interesting. What I really found fascinating was that, not a, that a university um, isn't limited to doing research and providing education but a university can also help strengthen regional economic development and to promote upward economic mobility for for students and faculty, but also for the whole region. And so that was really kind of a revelation for me that that's another dimension of a university that um, I hadn't really understood before I read that article. And so I decided I kind of got on a new mission and I was very interested in promoting entrepreneurship and innovation. Again, not not because I was interested in in a, a bunch of uh, very rich entrepreneurs or venture capitalists or investors. I was really interested in job creation. So I was really interested in companies that spin out of a, a university and the ability of those companies to create jobs and to create upward economic mobility for the workforce. So that was kind of a very foundational experience in my career and that 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 kind of got me into the the leadership and the administrative uh, work so it was really based on that that new mission I had it wasn't because I wanted to become an administrator in fact I did not want to become an administrator but I kind of I got possessed by this new mission uh, that I found so compelling and and so that's really what started my administrative and, and leadership activities. But 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 going back to your, your question about what else in my upbringing, um, I, I was always, um, uh, my father was a social worker and so we were always talking about psychology and people and behavior and so I was very familiar with that kind of thing. And, and in college, I, uh, I started out as an architecture major, but then I changed, I wanted to be a clinical psychologist because I wanted to help people in that uh, environment. And then I later got interested in organizational psychology. 
So, uh, but but that those were some fundamental kind of experiences in my upbringing, which which got me thinking about leadership and organizations. And then I had this this foundational career experience uh, that got me into uh, entrepreneurship and innovation, and that that kind of put me on the path. Okay, so. And organizational psychology, how does that differ from um, traditional psychology? Well, when, when most of us think about psychology, we think about healthcare-related psychology, so uh, uh, mental health and um, in that area. And so there's, there's a whole other field within psychology that is about how organizations function. So it's about uh, why people become leaders, it's about how we manage conflict. It's about how we create reward systems. It's about how groups make decisions uh, together. It's uh, it's about how we select uh, new colleagues, staff members, or others. And so I, I got very interested in 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 the organizational psychology part because that that seemed like a way that I could make a contribution in an organizational setting that was not health related, but it, it, it was indirectly mental health related, but it wasn't about being a clinical psychologist and being a counselor and seeing people one-on-one -on -one and, and that sort of thing. So to me, it seemed like a nice fit of my interest in psychology and behavior, but also relevance to the workplace. Okay. Okay, and so what have your, it seems like you've had a lot of interests um, growing up. What have your career aspirations been like throughout life? How have they changed, uh, especially going from studying psychology to um, higher education? Well, um, I, my career aspirations earlier in my career was just to, to publish and teach and, and get tenured and <laughs> and progress in the academic career path. And that's all I really thought about for the first seven or eight years of, of my career. And uh, so I've, I've, I've been an active researcher. I'm really fascinated with the, the intellectual stimulation of the discovery aspect of doing research and, and uh, publishing the research. And, and I, I, I really love the social aspect of teaching. So, mm -hmm. You know, research is a more, much more solitary kind of activity where you're just working on your own or you're working in a small group. Teaching is a much more social activity, and so I'm, I'm, I'm pretty social as as a person, and so teaching gives me an avenue to to engage more with with students and other faculty, and and so I, I really enjoy that aspect of it. And I've I've taught all kinds of courses at the undergraduate level and the graduate level. And I've, I've taught large sections of undergraduates uh, years ago, and, and that's, that's interesting because it's, it's teaching, but it's also about just trying to keep the crowd interested. <laughs> so that's the kind of part of it. It's a little bit of a performance aspect uh, <laughs> uh, of that as well. And, uh, and then some other uh, teaching opportunities were much very, very different in terms of uh, working with uh, business executives and and helping them pursue their careers and so um, so I like all of that and, but it's more social and and that's one of the things that and today it's fun for me to talk to to you all because that's more of a social activity for me to be with students 
And uh, there are only limited opportunities for, for me to do that now, but I always, always welcome those opportunities. Yes, for sure. And going even deeper into the ed your education background, um, I've seen that you pursue your master's degree in social psychology from the London School of Economics and Political Science. So how did that opportunity come to life? How were you driven to study abroad? Yeah. Well, yeah, thank you for asking about that. That was also a very important uh, event in my life. Um, I was, uh, um, one of my um, friends in undergraduate school had received a Rotary Foundation scholarship to study overseas. So this is a, a scholarship program sponsored by Rotary Clubs. And so he urged me to apply and I, I did and, and I got the scholarship and, and, and then I was um, uh, assigned to the London School of Economics. And uh, that was the first time I had ever been outside the country. So I had never traveled uh, internationally before that. And so I, of course, I landed in the middle of London and it's a very <laughs> stimulating city. It's a huge city and, and, and the London School of Economics is a fascinating place. And it, it, it's probably one of, if not the most international institution of higher education in the world. That I was in my master's program, I was the only American. Wow. So we had people from Jamaica and Germany and, and uh, Finland and um, uh, Africa and just all over the world. And I just found that so stimulating, uh, that, that experience. And that then, um, interesting, interestingly, it had a, a personal impact on me as well because I got very interested and, and um, fascinated by people from other countries and with international backgrounds. And then when I met my wife at, at Cornell, she's an international person. She was born and raised in China and then came to the U.S. for graduate school. And so I think my experience in London then gave me a, an, a lens, a framework to interact with someone from another culture and, and allowed me to engage with her in a way that I, I, I wouldn't have been able to had I not had that international experience. And of course, that we got married and that was, you know, 30 years ago. So, uh, so it's, uh, you know, that, that experience at the LSE was important for me intellectually and also for me personally. Absolutely. And since you mentioned um, Dr. Cheyenne Corral, how did you both meet? You mentioned Rice University, uh, but how was the encounter? If you don't mind oh, me asking. <laughs> I, I don't mind. Uh, we were at Cornell together, so in upstate New York, and she was she and I were in the same department. We were both PhD students in the in the same department. And uh, we, we just met uh, over uh, coffee. Uh, and uh, just struck up a conversation. I thought she was fascinating and we got together then. And it, it's really, um, she's just a fascinating person for me to, to get to know. And, and so uh, that's how we met. We were in the same department and, um, and then uh, got married about a year and a half after we met. 
Uh, I love to hear those kinds of stories. There, you need to hear those kinds of stories nowadays, especially yeah. <laughs> happy <laughs> ones. Happy stories. <laughs> but and you both also have a joint child in animal form, Rocky. <laughs> That's right. We have to know. We've been discussing this. Is it a coincidence? <laughs> it's so coincidental that he's a bulldog named Rocky. How long have you had him? So, so Rocky is one year and one day old. Oh wow! So he's right. he's uh, he's a he's just about a year old, and he's he's fifty pounds now. And the reason why we there are a couple of reasons why we have a bulldog. One is because when I was a kid, I had a bulldog. I had an English bulldog as a kid, and I uh, thought it was a great dog. And so we were thinking about what kind of dog to get. And I said a bulldog would be a, a good one to have. And then we then it occurred to us, bull dog, <laughs> right? So this seemed this seemed like the perfect dog for us to get uh, at at the University of South Florida. And we just thought, well, it's easy to to decide on his name. You just name him Rocky. So, uh, so he's Rocky the Bulldog, <laughs> so not not to be confused with Rocky the mascot, but um, but he's he's a lot of fun and he is a, a member of our family now, and we're we're looking forward to kind of taking him out now that we, if we can get past COVID, we'd like to take him out and take him on campus and let people see him, and he's he's a sweet little guy, so he's he likes a lot of love. Oh, I love to hear that. If it comes about talk about dogs, I'm all for it. And like you mentioned, it, I think it was meant to be because you having a bulldog in your childhood and now a bulldog, that's that's crazy. Yeah, we're, we're thinking about get, building an Instagram uh, page for Rocky because we have lots of, uh, my wife took lots of video of him, especially as a puppy. And he, I'll tell you, so cute as a puppy. <laughs> Oh, I can imagine. And I bet he, this must he run around Lipsy House. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he comes upstairs, downstairs, runs around, goes outside. And and uh, he's he just, uh, you know, he just kind of runs all over the place. So he's he, he's cute. He's really uh, he's he's a good dog and he's he's smart and he's friendly, too. He I mean, he looks kind of a little bit fierce. <laughs> but he's he's really he loves to get loved and petted and so he's he's a friendly guy uh, i look forward to seeing him on campus yeah. once things get back to a sense of normalcy but since we mentioned the lipsy house i wanted to ask you um when you first uh took um came to usf lipsy house has been unoccupied for about 20 years right. and I like what made you want to call Lipsy House your home mm -hmm. and like living there yeah, that's a great question we we think Lipsy House is great and um you're right it, it it had not been lived in for about 20 years and and frankly it was in pretty bad shape so it, it the plumbing in the second floor didn't work some of it didn't work uh, the heating and air conditioning wasn't right. There's asbestos inside. Mm. Uh, there was no security system. There was no Wi-Fi. Oh. Uh, so it, it really, but we just, we just really thought it was a beautiful house. And um, we thought if, if we're going to be president here, we ought to live in the house. 
and it, it you know we so we never leave campus we uh, you know we we live here and we're here all day every day and every night and and we feel like that 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 embeds us in in the community and it also uh, makes us more accessible in some ways. We walk on campus. I mean, you see my wife walking on campus a lot. She's uh, she's free she, more often than I do. She walks on campus, and um, we we just we just did it to really be part of the community, and um, and uh, we just thought that that was the right role. And and she likes the design. I, I like the design of the house too, and uh, it's a fascinating design and. You know, long as long as I felt she she liked the house, then I was happy. If, if she was happy, I was happy with it. They say happy wife, happy life. Is that what they say? I'm sure that's something my dad told me at some point. Oh my goodness! She, she spent she spent quite a bit of time, you know, helping on. There were a lot of things that needed to to be done. So, but it's it's in good shape now. And I know you mentioned that um, Dr. Hurl, you know, she'll take walks around campus. What do you, what are your hobbies when you're not on the clock? What do you, what do you try to do to relax? Well, we, we go on walks together some. And um, um, also I, I try to get some exercise. So mm -hmm. that, that helps. I'm not very ambitious anymore, but some stretching and on stationary bike, just trying to do some cardiovascular exercise. And I, I, I'm trying to get where I can get back to running. So I, I haven't quite done that yet. But I, when I was a kid, I, I, I ran a lot, ran track. And so I'd like to get back into, into that uh, routine. So um, that's, you know, that's probably the, the main thing. Uh, just getting exercise is really. And then we, we watch movies uh, together. We like like to watch movies. And and then we go to athletic events. And, you know, we were doing more of that before COVID, but we'll get back to doing it after we get through COVID. So I, I, I like I like doing that. And uh, actually, in uh, in autumn of 2019, I I flipped I, I, I did the coin flip at the first home football game when we played Wisconsin. And I brought Cheyenne out and on the field uh, with me. And so, you know, that's that's fun to to be at athletic events as well. So that's that's very enjoyable for me. And it's kind of a change of pace, actually. And in some ways uh, that's a, a stress management uh, activity. Absolutely. And since you mentioned a little bit about routine in the beginning, uh, do you have a morning routine? Like, are you one of these people that wake up 4 a.m. and start like has this whole thing planned of exercising or, you know, something built to start the day right? Or what does a day in your life look like? Well, um, I uh, this this job normally requires a lot of work at night. There are a lot of events at night, which which works well for me, actually. So that I'm 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 good until 10 or 11 o'clock at night. And so uh, when I get up in the morning, I'm uh, I'm working within about five minutes of getting up. I just grab my phone. I'm starting to read uh, email and, and newspapers and, and, and things like that. And I, I don't have a super specific routine. I mean, every every day is not the same. A lot of it is just the, based on the meetings that that I have scheduled. So uh, I, I try to. Um, I, I try to be flexible to have meetings when when others 
are available. We, we always have a, a, every Monday at 10 a.m. from 10 to 11.30, we have a leadership team meeting and that's a very routinized structure. So uh, we do that, but, but most of my time is, is in other meetings and right now it's on uh, video and Microsoft Teams mainly. So, uh, uh, but I, you know, I have a pretty aggressive pace in terms of the amount of, amount of work that I do. But again, as I said earlier, I don't, you know, I, I feel like it's a mission and I don't, you know, I don't feel like it's really, it's not like I'm checking a, punching a time clock and I keep track of my time uh, in very specific ways. But it, I do have a calendar and the calendar is, takes a lot of management by my team. You know, it's, it's very heavily scheduled and uh, we're, we're pretty efficient in, in using my time. So, um you know, there's not a, a set structure, but uh, there's a pretty pretty set amount or volume of, of work that, that we schedule every week. Right, and so it seems like you have to be a pretty flexible person um, for uh, what you do. Um, in terms of, you know, how do you try to kind of keep some stability in terms of being on the screen all day? I know you mentioned checking emails first things, first thing in the morning. I know that's a pretty routine for us too. How do you try to, um, you know, I know you mentioned exercise and things like that, but I know, at least for me and later, we talk a lot about how the screen kind of really wears on us, especially during the pandemic. So what's that like for you? Well, you know, um, when when we have dinner then you know we try not to be too focused on our devices and and then on on weekends i take some time where we you know i just get away from the screen and i i don't um i use my phone but i, I i'm not really addicted to the phone i i spend more time on the computer and i do use email quite a lot um, but I, I don't, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't surf the web a lot on my phone. I don't do a lot of, I, I am, I, do, I have a social media presence, but I'm, I'm not constantly checking Facebook or Twitter. Or, I, I just don't feel the need to do that. I feel like my time's better used in other ways. So I never really quite got that addiction. I just, right. these are tools that I use and I, I just see them as tools. Right. Yeah, I, don't, I don't feel compelled to constantly be checking social media. Absolutely. And that's a good habit. <laughs> yes. Especially nowadays with everything that's been happening. We need we need some life outside the screen. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, just we had step enough. Away. Step away from it. Yeah. I I don't I don't have much trouble like at night or you know, I mean I have my phone near me, but I'm not looking at that at night. I just put it away and Leave it. That's awesome to hear. And I think as we get to uh, the end of our conversation, I wanted to last, uh, ask one last question, is that despite all the challenges that you've been through with like and uh, overseeing uh, all three campuses with the pandemic, consolidation, all of that, what are you most optimistic about when it comes to welcoming more students back on campus and returning to a sense of normalcy in the coming months? Well, the thing I've been most impressed about in COVID, in dealing with COVID, is is really the responsibility, the personal responsibility that our students have shown. Mm -hmm. When people ask me, well, well, how were you able to contain the virus better than some other universities? 
my, my answer is really been, it's, it's, it's everybody. It's the whole team, it's faculty and staff and, and it's students. And I think a lot of universities um, have not done as well because their students didn't take personal responsibility for risk mitigation and compliance. I think our students have done that very well. And I think that's been the secret sauce for the University of South Florida and the way that we've had uh, the success that we've had. And so I, I attribute that to the, the values that our, our students have and their, their discipline, their focus on academics and moving toward um, their careers and, um, and just being highly responsible. And that's, that's really what I'm most proud of in terms of what the university has done. And I think that's gonna, you know, that positions us for getting back to something more normal in a way that is still responsible and still being mindful of, of being careful. Um, and I'm, I'm sure that our students are gonna do that because we've been, they've been responsible throughout this process. And I've got a lot of confidence in their ability to continue to behave in a responsible way. Absolutely. Well. Thank you so much for joining um, the podcast. We really appreciate it. And it was an honor to have you as our guest. It was a great conversation and we loved it. Thank you yes. so much. It's really a lot of fun for me to be with you all today. And thank you so much for inviting me to visit with you. Thanks for tuning in. Rate or like us on your podcast platform of choice, whether that's Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at USF Oracle to keep up with the latest USF news. Special thanks to Lakey Inspired for the intro and outro music. See you on the next episode.